32 counties and 32 questions. My name is Una. Andrea's on her birthday week sojourn. And this is United Ireland. We usually take a county, dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. And we kind of still do that. But in these extraordinary times, we're responding to issues emerging from life within a global pandemic uh, in Ireland. This week, we're going to be talking about how horse culture is under threat in Dublin's inner city, particularly in the Liberties, as plans for developing two new hotels will potentially have devastating consequences for the long-standing culture of horses in the area. We'll be speaking with a Norwegian artist who has found herself spearheading a movement to maintain that culture. Thank you to our supporters and Patreon. You make this podcast happen. If you listen to this podcast um, but have never financially contributed to it, um, don't worry. You can if you can afford it. It's like three quid or you can do five quid a month. Um, it all really, really helps. And we do need uh, to keep um, it going, <laughs> basically. So we do actually need your support, need your money. If you're smashed, don't worry, loads of people are. What really helps as well are things like reviewing it on iTunes, if you're into doing that, or just sharing it on your social media or just telling people about it. Um, it's all uh, helpful. When you sign up, you get um, various different rewards. Uh, coming soon are our new It's Bananas tote bags. And you also get the Sunday Soothe, uh, which is very soothing. So please, please do that. And thank you so much to the people who've been there from the start, to our new um, Patreon pals. Um been coming in the last couple of weeks. Really appreciate it. Nice one. Uh, but first of all, on this United Ireland episode, uh, let's talk about the state of the nation. So my uh, BFF turned pen pal, uh, Dublin City Council Chief Executive Owen Keegan, wrote a letter to the Irish Times in response to a piece that I wrote on outdoor dining in Dublin City. And uh, so I wrote a piece on Monday just about kind of missed opportunities, really, um, with regards to things that could have happened uh, in the in the capital um, and that kind of didn't. Anyway, uh, Keegan wrote, wrote uh, a, a letter to the Irish Times um, basically saying that I was being really unfair and, um, you know, that business owners are kind of responsible for, you know, doing their bits um, and kind of remarkably... Um, ended the letter with, you know, it is not immediately apparent what the council can do, what more the council can do. Um, I mean, I don't think a solution is kind of throwing your hands up and saying, stop giving out to us. We don't have any ideas. <laughs> um, I do think that, you know, there are very, very obvious solutions staring people in the face with regards to outdoor dining um, Orla Haggerty, who was on our podcast recently, she was she kind of replied to a, a tweet that I sent on Thursday talking about car parks. Um, and, and, you know, this is something that we've raised a couple of times and, and indeed I raised it in my piece earlier in the week about how they, you know, are very, very obvious solutions. And of course, in multiple kind of other cities in Europe, car parks are used as, you know, big rooftop or kind of outdoor outdoor, indoor kind of dining and bar spaces. Um, 
yeah, I just feel like there's a lack of imagination in the city. And when you see a letter like that landing going, you know, like we don't have any other solutions, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. But um, we'll keep on that. Um, it, it doesn't really, from the tone of the letter now, I didn't really get the impression that um, Mr. Keegan was very happy. Um, but, you know, there you go. Uh, other state of the nation, Eve Grace Moore, um, friend of the pod, of course. You can check out her byline uh, episode that we did recently. Had a piece on the front of the Examiner about uh, Manor Farm, which is a meat processing plot, a chicken uh, processing company, um, was charging staff at its plants for PPE. Now, as we know, meat processing factories and plants have been uh, at the heart of COVID-19 outbreaks in Ireland, as they have been also in, in other countries. Um, but the Irish Examiner and, and Aoife saw that that uh, they'd seen some of the, they've seen some pay slips and that some staff had 50 euros, up to 50 euros deducted from their wages uh, to pay for the price of PPE. Um, I mean, I just feel like that's, that seems really, really outrageous. Uh now, we know that there have been multiple stories about the lack of protections for people working in, in meat factories and plants and so on. Um, uh, Brian O'Donnell actually has been doing some really good reporting on this on RTE uh, and the fears that people have around losing their jobs and the conditions and, you know, to be charging people uh, for protective equipment in a pandemic seems outrageous. I mean, obviously, there are so many um, questions that remain unanswered with regards to meat plants. Holly Kearns was on the Week in Politics recently and she was basically taking Simon Harris to, ha- to task, just saying, you know, how can you shut down counties and not shut down plants? Um, there's also been like, there was a pause in testing recently for over a week, I think, because the HSE tests reached capacity, all this kind of stuff. So it just remains mind boggling to me is like we know where those clusters were coming from. And indeed, there's, a, I think, another outbreak in Waterford very recently. And why aren't these places just like shut down straight away when when other businesses where there isn't necessarily a clear link uh, to outbreaks and certainly not clusters coming from them, uh, you know, with regards to bars and restaurants and stuff, they've been shut down, you know, in in the name of public health. I just do think we're going to keep coming back to this meat plant thing because it just seemed bizarre. Um, if you want more rage in your life uh, after hearing that, there's a story um, on Thursday in the Irish Times by Gordon Deegan about how five clampers at a clamping company uh, basically used this kind of workaround that allowed them to clamp more cars and thus earn... Um, higher work bonuses. This was a finding at the WRC, the Workplace Relations Commission. And uh, uh, this guy basically told the WRC that um, he clamped two and a half thousand vehicles between January and October 2018. Um, and kind of using these kind of workarounds to basically that means like um, a clamper kind of looks at when a car is parking and looks at the time and then tells that time to a colleague and then the colleague at the end of the grace period clamps the car. So, you know, I know a lot of people will be familiar with like having a car clamped in this like really 
remarkably um, short window of time. Uh, so that's that will give you the rage, wouldn't it? Um, I do kind of love, even though I pres- presume it's illegal, you know, when you just see clamps, you know, abandoned on the side of the path or something and you're just going to feel like, yes, someone got one up on them. I'm not advocating for that. I'm sure it's like a criminal damage offence or something. Don't do it, obviously. But uh, I, I don't know. It just makes me smile sometimes. Um, so on uh, COVID stuff across the water in the UK, which shaky, shaky, shaky it feels over there at the moment. Kind of a pseudo lockdown in London with pubs and bars and places like that closing at 10 o'clock and and Boris Johnson uh, who's just turning full maniac at the moment shouting about freedom in Parliament. Um, Nonsense, nonsense stuff. Uh, it would make you quite worried uh, for our pals um, across the Irish Sea. And, and key to this, I think, is the testing issues. So um, the contact tracing app in the UK only has about 10% take up in some areas. There's a story in The Guardian about how thousands of nurses and GPs are being forced to stay off work because they can't access testing. Um, the NHS, uh, actually senior officials in the NHS wrote to the HSE recently asking if the Irish Health Service could kind of help them out with their testing to kind of like plug a hole because they're just, the capacity is, is you know, not good, um, which we can't do because our own testing is also reaching capacity. And uh, I think we have an agreement with this kind of German lab, which we've had from quite early on in the pandemic to kind of help out. So it feels like m- major cracks are showing there uh, in the UK. It must be very worrying. And when I talk to my friends in, in London in particular, they're kind of saying the same thing over and over again about how hard it is to find information. Um, you know, I know a lot of people here give out about the fact that when, you know, the the daily update of numbers and hospital admissions and very, very sadly, obviously deaths, um, causes a lot of anxiety or that, you know, news media like is obsessing over these numbers. But I do think it does give us a better sense of, you know, whether things are getting worse or better or stabilizing. Um, I understand the criticisms, but I would prefer to have a general clearer picture than not really know what the hell is going on because it's an kind of an anxious enough time. And, uh, you know, there's a certain quality to our to our shared media that if you do listen to drive time you know in the evening or morning or in the morning or pick up a newspaper that you kind of do have a have a grasp what's going on doesn't really seem to be the case in the UK so um I don't know what you can say about that really apart from to to hope people are are safe and well so now um we're gonna giddy up and talk horses would be good to have some Paddy Smith in here Andrew as you as you edit this remotely Little bit of horses, maybe. Oh, sorry. Now, one of the um, most kind of distinct and one of the oldest aspects of Dublin city life is the horse culture that populates and contributes to pockets of the inner city. Across the city, there are horse yards, many of them, but many have been demolished and squeezed out in recent years due to development. For me personally, nothing really says Dublin from my childhood to my adulthood than the sounds of, of horses and traps coming down city streets. 
A while ago, Andrea mentioned uh, on the podcast proposed development for yet another hotel in the Liberties. And you know how we feel about them uh, in Dublin 8. This one at Molyneux Yard, uh, which is right next to another hotel development at Vicar Street. Um, and uh, next month, the, the filmmaker and photographer Marion Bergen has a beautiful short film launching on the Nowness about horse culture in Dublin 7. Keep an eye out for that. We'll tell you when it's land lands. But joining us to discuss what's going on in Dublin 8 is Kristen Valset, also known as the Musical Slave, also known as Norwegi. Uh, you may have seen a piece that she wrote uh, on Ortiz Culture website, along with her short film No Plan, which won Best Short Documentary at the IFI Documentary Film Festival in 2017. And Kristen has been working with and advocating for um, people who uh, have horses in the inner city for some time now. And so we're delighted to have her on uh, on the podcast. Hello, Kristen. Hey, how are you? I'm very good. Now, how did you come to be involved in the horse culture in Dublin 8? Yeah, it really happened uh, completely by accident. Um, I was actually on, on a road trip and uh, yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing or where I was going. I was living in my van and after a few months I, I landed in Dublin and uh, on my very first day here I accidentally crashed um, my, my van into a wall in the middle of the city which I later found out was in, in the Liberties. And after I crashed uh, I, I saw a, a horse walk out of the same wall where I crashed and a few teenage boys and uh, I was just so excited to see a horse in the middle of the city. So, so I just ran over and was like, wow, what's going on, you know? And uh, one of the boys invited me for, for a spin. And he got out this two-wheeler. And yeah, soon we were, we were kind of just flying down uh, Cork Street with a horse and two-wheeler. And uh, I just got this, this really strong feeling of, of freedom. Like something just happened to me. And I was like, I have to do this every day. And uh, so I ended up staying in, in Dublin because of yeah the horse the horses and, and the people I met, and uh, within a few months I, I bought my own horse and I moved them into the yard with the boys in uh, Molyneux Yard, uh, where they're now building two enormous hotels, and uh, yeah I stayed there for about two and a half years and I've basically never been so inspired in in my life. I wrote about. 10 songs based on that area and the people and the horses. And, um, yeah, I just have a really strong love for this, this community. And, um, and it's really heartbreaking for me and for them what's happening now and how they're just being thrown out of their, their horse yards. And the council is, is not giving them any, any respect really. They're, they're kind of pretending like the horse uh, yards and the horse culture doesn't exist and instead of recognizing it and calling them horse yards, they just call them sheds. So when, like yesterday, we did an interview for News Talk and the council replied that there are no horse yards here. There are just sheds. And so they can be demolished and it's not a problem. So that's basically their, their general attitude towards it. What was your kind of... Um like what was your experience when you became embedded in this community? Because I think for a lot of people who maybe don't grow up with horse culture, it's something that happens from afar. Like you're familiar with it in terms of the sound of the city, the literal sound of horses who's on, on the cobblestones, but people often don't interact with it at all, apart from seeing 
uh, young people, particularly young men on, on the two wheeler traps or, you know, seeing a horse in a, in a field near an estate or something like that. What what kind of um, experience were you having over those two and a half years? Well, I'd probably say probably like one of the best experiences uh, of my life. Like it, it was so unexpected to find this this group of people that were into horses in the middle of the city that I was just like what, a bit confused in the beginning. Like how how is this possible? How could they have kept this this horse culture alive for so long in the middle of the city? Like I found it really impressive and. I don't know. It was just, I was just kind of living my life and these were the people I wanted to spend time with. So I just stayed. I didn't really, you know, give it any more thought than that. I just knew I wanted to stay. And, you know, it just became my, my daily life. And especially after I got my horse, you know, I had to be there all day, every day. Cause like the horses require a lot of work. So, you know, I just ended up spending a lot of time with these people um and they just yeah became my friends and uh, even now when I, I went back to Norway after after three years and even now like I go back to, to visit Dublin um and uh, yeah I always go back to see them and check in on them and, yeah see how things are and yeah this last time I was here of course I got I got the news about the two hotels going up and I was just really devastated and it's it's been really hard for me to handle like just the feelings that I've gotten it's just really really sad and really depressing how their culture can just be ignored and kind of shunned like they just basically want to take all the inner city horse yards and shut them down and you know move them out of the out of the city and I just think that's very like condescending and and very wrong because like the culture has been there for so long and especially with the Guinness factory and the liberties, like the horses were used in the production and, and transportation of Guinness for over 200 years. Now, if that doesn't like warrant like respect, uh, I don't know what will like the, the, the horse community really helped make uh, the Guinness trademark, you know, that Ireland is so, so famous for. And they, they really are, part of the soul and, and heritage of that area and they should be you know, respected and acknowledged. Explain to me the layout of the horse yards there. Um, there's lots of conversations around the lane. Uh, I, I think there were, even up until relatively recently, more horse yards than, than currently exi- exist. So how many are there now and how many used to be there? Well, it's kind of, it's always evolving and, and changing. And, you know, when, when new horse owners come in, they might even like rebuild stables. So it's really hard to keep track of exactly the, the number of yards. And I don't know how many yards were there originally. Like there's been horse yards there for generations. So, but when I arrived, um, I think there are three horse yards at the very top of the laneway. And then there are three horse yards at the bottom of the laneway. So I think in, in total, six horse yards. And uh, the three horse yards at the top of the laneway, fortunately, are not touched by either of the two hotels. But I still don't know if they will be allowed to continue once the hotels go up, because the, the developers might argue that they don't want horses near their hotels. or I don't know. But at the bottom of the lane, two of the yards have already been shut down and demolished by the by the council. Like there was a big eviction about a year ago, and there's one one big yard left at the bottom of the lane. 
So, so in total, there's, there's two yards been demolished so far and there's one more big yard going to be demolished. And then there's three yards that are preserved at the top, but they're smaller and they're not as nice because they don't have as much light coming in, you know? So it's, it's really the, the three biggest and most beautiful horse yards that the, are going to be demolished. Yeah. So what is the situation with planning there? I mean, I was looking at the architectural drawings of the plan for this particular hotel, the kind of the second hotel. Yeah. And even when you're kind of looking at the the plans, like there's one part where football pitch marking just kind of disappears into a building. Um, what What is the situation with, with the hotel planning there? What's being built and what's the timeline? Well, um, like they don't know yet. And I, I think like the, the owners of both plots of land, like both for the first and second hotel, they've owned the land for a long time. And what's really been going on is this, uh, the developers, I don't know if these developers in particular, but developers in in general are lobbying, uh, you know, and trying to get ministers to pass regulations that favor them. And um, in 2018, like a new national guideline uh, for building in the city center was passed allowing for buildings of much uh, greater height and density in in the city center. And it was after those new guidelines were passed that both of these uh, hotel um, applications were put in because they want, you know, to build these huge hotels that are completely out of proportion with the rest of the area. And this is actually like an, an architectural conservation area. Uh, so they're actually Dublin City Council's responsibility is actually to protect this area. Um, which they aren't doing because obviously money talks louder. Um, but that's what's really sad is that like just the entire area is one of the oldest like remaining communities in uh, Dublin city centre. And this laneway, Molyneux Yard, is actually around 600 years old. And um, it's one of the last, one of the oldest and last remaining alleyways from the post-medieval period. And this has not been given any regard in either of the, the planning applications. So it's basically, you know, they say these developers, you know, these millionaires can come in and do whatever they want. They own the land, so they don't have to respect anything. And they don't even respect the, the Dublin City Development Plan because now these new national guidelines passed by the housing minister in 2018 completely overrules the Dublin um, city development plan, which would, would originally have protected the liberties from these huge structures. Yeah, so this was the kind of, I think it was a ministerial order by Owen Murphy. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and with regards to the architectural conservation area, that tends to make demolition very difficult. Was that not taken into account in the planning process for the area? Well, there were there was a lot of uh, protests against the first hotel. There was a huge campaign and many local politicians involved. And the local politicians put in appeals against this first hotel. And um, like one of their many arguments was this um, architectural conservation area status that the that the area has. And um, basically, the the council responded by writing a long report and basically concluding that, yes, we hear you, but we don't take this into account or we don't see that there is any culture or heritage being damaged here. So we're just going to go ahead anyway. You know, so basically at the end of the day, it's always people making these decisions. And I think, you know, there are things going on behind the scenes. And when, 
when people have a lot of money, you know, they just tend to be able to do what they want for, for obvious reasons. And uh, people just don't want to oppose them. And the council doesn't want to get sued. And it's just easier to say yes than to take the responsibility to actually protect the area, which is what the council should be doing. So what's happening now? I understand um, a, a group, including yourself, have a petition going on. Is there hope? Can, like, will, it, will it be possible to save these horse yards and protect that culture in the area? Well, we are trying the best we can to follow through on this appeals process. The thing that happened with, with the second hotel was there was so much focus on the first hotel and such a battle against the first hotel that the, the second hotel kind of just put in their application on the sly and no one really knew about it because I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams would have thought that another hotel was going up right beside the first one when there was already so much resistance against the first one. So there was a lot of uh, residents and horse owners and people in, in the Liberties in general who didn't know about the second application and they feel that the developer and the council didn't really inform the people concerned about the second hotel application. Uh, but fortunately there was one uh, resident who uh, appealed in time and now there are a few others including our group that have put in observations on the back of this appeal. So we're kind of awaiting the final uh, response within the next two or three months but like from everyone we've talked to, everyone who works in planning in the council and local politicians and everyone who has experience with these cases, they're all saying there's no way they're going to stop the developer. There's no way they're going to take the side of normal people over the developer. They're saying it's like 99.9% chance that the second hotel will get built as well because normal people, although they're allowed to appeal, you know, their opinions are not given any real weight. And the big problem here is that Dublin City Council is not taking the responsibility to actually protect this area, which is supposed to be protected. And it's written in, in the council's own uh, planning documents that it's an architectural conservation area. But yeah, money speaks louder, like I said. Well, we'll definitely keep our eyes on this and we'll keep talking about it. We'll put the petition up uh, with this episode. Um, and, you know, although sometimes things can feel like a foregone conclusion, I think there is there is always hope, particularly now when the idea of just keep on building these massive hotels when we actually have no tours in the city is pretty ridiculous in and of itself. Yeah. But <laughs> It really but, is. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense. But the good thing is I actually talked to, there's three politicians that are really on, on our side and that want to help us. There's uh, from People Before Profit, there's uh, the local councillor, Tina McVeigh, and there's uh, Gino Kenny, uh, he's a TD, and then there's Dara Moriarty from the Labour Party, and they say that if the second hotel does end up getting built, we should put in uh, a claim to get new horse yards somewhere else in the Liberties, and all, all three of them said that they would help us with this, and I think that would be a positive outcome, that even if if the Molyneux Yard horse community is destroyed, that maybe we can we can get a new horse community going somewhere else in the Liberties and not, you know, be allowed to push us out completely. Well, thanks so much for your for your work on this, Kristen. It's really fascinating and, and such an interesting um perspective from yourself. You know, I think sometimes it can it can take an outsider's um perspective to realize what needs to be um kept alive in in our capital city here. So thanks so much and, and best of luck with it. Thank you so much.
Okay, we're going to put up uh, that petition um, related to the Horse Yards and Molyneux Yard in the Liberties on our Patreon page. So uh, check that out. And getting in the sea this week, it's kind of a bit of a trite one. I mean, Andre is just always so much better at these ones. But getting in the sea is people sharing misinformation about COVID. Now, I know that this is a longstanding issue. Um, and I'm not just talking about crazy, crazy, you know, drink bleach, only slaves wear masks, let's hang banners over the Slork and Geo carriageway and shout about RT. I'm not talking about that stuff. That's obviously ridiculous and crazy and just stop. Um, it's just the other bit. So I think that we're in, I'm feeling heightened level of, you know, anxiety at the moment. This has definitely been a very stressful phase. Um, and then you have all of this kind of information floating around. It seems to always orientate around Sweden as if, um, you know, Sweden is living in some like COVID free utopia where everything is completely normal, which, as we know, is not the case. Um, Philip O'Connor was on the podcast a while ago talking about how, like, yes, they approach things differently, but yes, everything is everybody's also distancing and, you know, people are working from home and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the kind of like a doctor says this, therefore it's right kind of stuff or sharing things on dodgy websites um, or being like, oh, this is kind of interesting when there's like massive chunks of misinformation in a piece Um that worries me because I think that as well as fighting a virus, we're obviously fighting misinformation around it and confusing contradictory stuff, uh, I think really increases the feeling of kind of whiplash and discombobulation and, and not really knowing where you stand. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody follow a party line and there is only one solution. There's only one way. Absolutely not. But um, this also isn't like, you know, a game or, you know, an interesting chapter in like Freakonomics or something like this is a public health issue. Um, and we need to be careful about what stuff we're sharing. And just because something sounds cool or provocative or is coming at something from like an angle that runs contrary to, I guess, the kind of given line or whatever doesn't necessarily mean that it's valid and I think we should interrogate our sources and again that whole like you know a doctor says this therefore they're completely qualified to say it like that's not true we also know that there are many doctors medical people professors and so on saying mad shit so um I think common sense and not spreading misinformation, even when it's dressed up as quality content, is a good thing. So sharing misinformation about COVID, that's getting in the sea. Okay, my fave bits this week. Uh, well, actually, do you know what? There's only one. Well, I was going to talk. Uh, no, no, there's only one fave bit this week. My fave bit is Andrea Horan. She's not on the podcast today. Uh, it is her birthday this week. One can imagine uh, the struggles uh, of, of planning um, 
birthday stuff and it not being able to go ahead and then Dublin effectively being in a quasi lockdown. And especially for somebody like Andrea, who I'm not sure if this ever comes across, but Andrea does actually like going out and (laughs) hanging out with her friends and having a ball. And I just want to wish her the happiest, happiest of birthdays. Um, I love Andrea so much. She's such a great pal. She just is an eternal optimist, no matter what shit gets thrown at her. She always, you know, turns around and and comes up with new ideas or a different kind of outlook. Um, She is so brilliant at bringing people together. She is so curious and smart and has such amazing ideas. She is an absolute joy and pleasure to work with. Um, I have had so many countless fantastic nights with her over the many, many years. And we were discussing recently when we actually first met um, because somebody asked us, I can't remember who it was. Uh, was it Hazel Chu or Kato Khan? It was somebody we were interviewing um, and Myself and Andrea met many, many, many years ago when I was a junior news reporter, I think, in the Sunday Tribune. And we met in the Westbury because Andrea was working for a PR company at the time. And one of the campaigns that she was running involved some brand, but crucially Glenda Gilson. And the phrase was... What they have are these stickers, just been on a banda with Glenda. This was high to the Celtic Tiger stuff, as you can imagine. And uh, that's when we first met because I was interviewing Glenda Gilson, uh, who is a, a lovely person, as everybody knows. Total, really, really um, sound, smart person. And uh, Andrea was was the person um, uh, chaperoning Glenda, shall we say. And uh, ever since then... <laughs> More or less, we've been pals. So my fave bit this week is Andrea. Uh, She is just an absolute joy. And I hope that even despite, you know, so many things changing around that she has a really fantastic birthday. Uh, Love you, pal. You are the best. And on that, our tuna chicken roll this week, I get to pick it. It was not only Andrea's birthday this week, uh, but Bruce Springsteen's birthday this week. And so we're going to have a little Bruce vibe, uh, but a cover of one of his best songs. This is Hot Chip, Dancing in the Dark. Thanks for listening. I've been Una. That was Protecting Horse Culture in Inner City Dublin. This is United Ireland. Thanks for listening. I get up in the evening And I ain't got nothing to say I come home in the morning I go to bed feeling the same way Man, I'm nothing but tired I'm just tired and bored with myself Hey there, baby I could use just a little help You can't start a fire
getting clearer Radio's on 